Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Indian Religions, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. Um, today I have the pleasure of speaking uh, with Dr. Chakravarti Ramprasad, uh, who is a professor at Lancaster University. We'll be speaking about a fascinating work called Human Being, Bodily Being, Phenomenology from Classical India. Uh, Ram, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about uh, the genesis of this book. Uh, this book began because uh, when I was writing my uh, previous book uh, called Divine Self, Human Self, um, which was a study of the commentaries on the Bhagavad Gita by Shankara and Ramanuja, one of the things that emerged was that that rigorous focus on the idea of the self Atman, in these sort of um, contexts of classical Indian philosophy, was a real focus on the essence of consciousness, so that at least as the tradition took up the Gita, the dense human context of a warrior out facing battle, uh, all the complexities of what was going to happen to Arjuna in the future, why he was the place where he was, his emotions and his relationship to um, his wife Draupadi and her uh, dishonoring uh, by uh, the cousins, the Kauravas, all of these densely human things were stripped away in what became one of the major trends in um, Indian philosophical writing in the first and first first millennium of the common era and uh, in the early part of the second millennium. And that was this rigorous, rigorous focus on the nature of consciousness, on the nature of cognition, on the nature of uh, sort of the spiritual discipline that leads to freedom. So while I could see in that context of Indian philosophy, that particular focus on the self as this abstract entity, I began to think about the kinds of much more complicated ways of looking at human beings that happened in the Mahabharata itself within which the Gita is located. One of the questions that sort of struck me repeatedly is that there is this vast kind of area of both the Indian materials, Hindu, Buddhist, Jain, the pre-modern Indian materials, as well as some contemporary trends in such areas as, you know, feminist thought and gender studies, for example, 
or in what is known as erotic phenomenology. There were many areas in which the abstract notion of the self, which is also a dominant theme in Western philosophy, uh, say, since Descartes, that abstract concern for all its explanatory power and its, you know, the importance that was given to it in both Western and Indian traditions, nevertheless did not reach out to the range of things that constitute human existence. So both in these Indian materials and other genres, than the kind of commentarial philosophy that I was talking about, as well as in these Western areas, like different dimensions of phenomenology, feminist thought, and so forth, there was a strength of sort of, there's this entire area where you're thinking about the human, not in terms of that abstract consciousness or the principle of existence that is sought within, but about the dense, complex, messy, interactive, nature of our bodily existence. So I wanted to therefore kind of move into looking at the ways in which human existence was thought about in different uh, bodily ways so that even the understanding of consciousness, even the understanding of selfhood was nevertheless folded into the way we are, the way we are in this world, and the relationship between our experience and the environment that we experience. So in, in, to that extent, I think in some senses, it was a kind of reaction to my own previous work that I began to wonder whether uh, there was a way of exploring uh, this bodiliness of the human experience in the classical Indian materials and also have it speak to some of these contemporary um, discourses. So this more um, messy conditioned bodily self, uh, as it were, um, where do we find discourse of this? What, what, what do you look to in your, in your book? Okay, so we could find it in all sorts of places in very different ways. Now, broadly, what we think of as Indian philosophy or what it has come to mean in recent decades concentrates quite rigorously on the debates between people who are called the Pramanavadins. Uh, that is to say, the exponents of the pramanas or the framework of gaining knowledge. That area basically consisted of different systems of thought that we now think of as Hindu, as well as Buddhist and Jain, who had very different starting points, very different ontological commitments, very different ways of um, explaining such details as the nature of perception, the nature of knowledge, uh, the nature of our senses and so forth, and the nature of the, of the world. But who, however, converged on certain rules and systems of debate, this, this system being the system of epistemic validation that we call the pramanas. That's what we have tended to think of as Indian philosophy because it was a coherent 
systematic thing. So if you're going to say, what's the nature of consciousness? What's the nature of knowledge? What's the nature of um, perception? Um, what's the nature of the physical world? You can follow answers to these questions through a great many different systems of thought who are all coherent in the sense that they are thinking of themselves as answering similar questions, including also how does this knowledge lead to um, freedom from suffering and so forth, which was also an underlying concern for these pre-modern Indian systems. However, when we turn to look at other kinds of questions that might concern us, they're not always thematized in exactly that same way. Now, the thing is that we are often driven, even in our contemporary sort of self-conscious globalizing way of uh, doing philosophy, we are still conditioned by the kind of categories that emerged from um, Western classical philosophy. Sometimes uh, I joke that what we think of as philosophy is simply, you know, the set of titles of Aristotle's books. You know, we just kind of think, oh, that's where it is. So we kind of tend to think things like, it's long been said, there's no political philosophy in India. What do you mean by political philosophy? Well, it's determined by the topics that Aristotle deemed necessary to cover in his book, Politics. Right. And what is metaphysics? Oh, it is because it's metaphysics. That's his book. So what we need to think about is questions that we now understand in a global condition as important might be thematized, might be explored in very different genres and very different contexts in traditions outside the classical and modern West. So the idea that we should look at the bodily nature of human, you know, human experience, the, the sort of the bodily phenomenology, was a contemporary question asked by someone like me, who is in this particular historical situation of being a post-colonial subject, working in the West, in English, looking at Sanskrit materials while having trained in Western philosophy, that I cannot undo the condition and the questions that arose in my mind in the way I was explaining before. But whereas when we look at the no nature of the self and its relation to between the human and the divine in the classical, in the Sanskrit materials, we find them thematized in that way, self-consciously argued for and debated, this fuzzier notion of, well, what if we look at the range of, you know, bodiliness in, in, in pre-modern Indian thought, we don't necessarily find people agreeing what the problems are, disagreeing on the solutions and debating them. Rather, we need a new mode of philosophy, which is not argumentative, but exploratory which looks at different kinds of materials and says, from where we stand, when we look back at how the history of philosophy has happened, when we ask ourselves the questions that occurred to us in our tangled cultural and epistemic position, what may we find? Now, what that means is that, in answer to your question, we could find 
ideas about the body anywhere in any pre-modern material. So I had to exercise some kind of slightly arbitrary judgment about what I wanted to explore. And what I decided to come down on to say, look, if we're going to be looking at this bodiliness, I want to look at four dramatically, deliberately different contexts in which while exploring other things, doing other things with the text, these ancient thinkers were also telling us some deep, profound, interesting, provocative ideas about the nature of the human being as bodily being. Yeah, it, it's fascinating. Uh, absolutely fascinating. And um, <laughs> in teaching context, I often say to folks, somewhat cheekily, but 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 deliberately that I say, look, don't read, um, say, say we're studying narrative. I said, you know, don't start off reading myself or Coburn or Doniger or anyone. Read the narrative. Read the narrative first. Yes, yes. And then see what others have to say. So so become exposed to the tradition. It's, it's next to impossible yeah. to undo one's training, particularly when in disembarking upon an intellectual exercise for the sake of answering a research question or putting together a proposal. But, you know, what you say about the the content is there, but in in, um, in less of a debate and in more sort of an adventure. For me, I'm slightly biased, but this is the power of ancient Indian narrative. Uh, there's exactly. so, so much there. Exactly. Unassuming often. It's profound. Um, so, so what are the what are the four um, places that you look in your book? Okay, so uh, the first um, chapter is on the Charaka Samhita. So, the Charaka Samhita is the compendium of uh, the earliest compendium of um, Indian medicine, what might broadly be called Indian medicine. It's written, you know, um, redacted edited in the course of the first to the fifth century of the common era. And the last editor uh, called Dridabala, whose text is reasonably stable thereafter, um, ascribes the original material to somebody called Charaka. The Charaka Samhita is a vast undertaking and a lot of it has to do with early forms of surgery, uh, a lot to do with uh, gynecological and obstetric uh, concerns about delivering safe, you know, baby safely. It's got a huge uh, range of um, sort of pharmacological treatments, especially using different herbs, different forms of treatment of uh, a huge range of illnesses that are diagnosed through uh, its own representation of um, the nature of the human body, which has some parallels to the theories of the humors in other ancient thought and does not really bear any close resemblance to uh, human uh, physiology as we understand it now. Now, there's a vast literature on the his in the history of uh, Hindu, uh, this sort of medicine, Hindu and Buddhist medicine, about the um, kind of 
explanatory framework within which the body was understood in the Charaka Samhita and so on. I took a different line on this. Amidst all of the more, what will we say, medical um, issues, the issues that are for the physician, the text also in places steps back and tries to give a kind of um, metaphysical account of what the person is. It says the ordinary person. So it's kind of trying to distinguish itself from the uh, what we would think philosophical and religious texts about the higher purpose and so forth. What the text says is, look, we are concerned simply about the human being who shows up and needs to be looked after by the physician. And we're going to be telling you how to diagnose those illnesses and how the physician must look after them. But who is this human being who shows up in front of us? And the text is delightfully open, pluralistic, almost tentative. It says, well, there is one way of categorizing the constituency of the human being, which, which are through 20 or 24 categories. Some others do it through, you know, three categories, et cetera, et cetera. And these are kind of what are available at that time, especially in such emerging philosophical systems like the Sankhya. It's clearly drawing on also on Buddhist terminology because Buddhist monasteries were clearly a site at the, at the start of the common era. Um, these Buddhist monasteries were often places for uh, medical treatment. And what the text therefore says is, it's not our job to enter into those kinds of debates. We just want to explore how we understand the human being. And of course, it, it wrestles with such things as saying, well, every categorization has this problem of looking at what might constitute the manas or the mind, which is not as accessible to the physician in the same way as in which the sharira or the body is accessible. Does that mean there are two quant uh, uh, you know, elements in the human being, or is it that there is a larger you know, composition to the human being of which the mind is part of? So it, it kind of plays around with different ways of thinking about the human being who shows up at the you know, hospital. What I did, therefore, was to say, well, this very approach, without necessarily becoming a classificatory system, is saying something about the very composite, very tentative, very open-ended way in which the ancient medical system allowed us to think about the human being. So it was to do with the human being as bodily being in the context of health and illness, because the, the text says, well, what goes wrong when people are ill? What is the aspect of their experience which renders them ill rather than well. So through that lens, we get one kind of an account of the human being as a bodily being. In the second text, I looked at um, an, extra, an intriguing but very little studied uh, story in the depths of the Mahabharata. I have to say, I rarely interrupt my guests, but that is, the, the dialogue that you, that you study is one of my uh, and there are so many, but one of my most favorite uh, or one that I find the, the most intriguing of all the Mahabharata. But, but please continue. No, yes, exactly. And, and you know, actually, and quite surprisingly, both in Hindu traditions as well in, as in, in Indological scholarship, 
very little attention was paid to it until uh, Professor Tim Fitzgerald uh, translate, uh, published a translation of it in the Journal of Indian Philosophy. And actually in the last you know, 10 or 15 years since that's happened, many people have found it accessible and also Indological scholarship has turned to look at the very different dimensions of it. So as you know, so that text is happening at the time um, Bhishma, the great, uh, the grandsire of the two sides of the Pandavas and the Kauravas and the Mahabharata, is um, going to let himself die because nobody can kill him outright. And as he lay, lies there, you have this enormously lengthy part of the Mahabharata in which he instructs the eldest of the Pandava princes, Yudhishthira, about uh, the nature of reality. And that often progresses and the nature of kingship, so the nature of this world, the next, and so forth. And often that proceeds through the recounting of particular stories. This particular story is about this um, rather arrogant uh, king called Janaka. Janaka is a name, of course, used for different kings in different places, even within these uh, discussions themselves. This Janaka is very arrogant about his own spiritual accomplishments. He thinks that he has been able to resolve the tension between being a king and living the material life and being spiritually adept. The story begins with this woman who is a, a renouncer called Sulabha. And Sulabha hears about Janaka and this is all told from her perspective. She says, who is this man? A man who is his, a renouncer and a king? I'm not sure. So he says, how can he be both a householder and a renouncer? So she takes on it as we don't know exactly who she was or how old she is, but she takes the form of a beautiful young woman, goes to uh, Janaka's court. And after receiving her with due respect, Janaka then reveals in a way his, his sort of true attitude to her and says all kinds of things about, well, you're a woman wandering out and alone. Um, something seems to be the case. You know, who's, you know, you're not with the father, you're not with the husband, there's something wrong with you and sort of makes all these crude uh, insinuations about her. Then begins this unbelievable, incredible sequence of ideas in which Sulabha, first of all, lays down to him, for him, the rules of debate, one of the earliest uh, sort of systematic formalizations of the rules of debate, which become so much more encoded in subsequent centuries uh, in, in Sanskrit thought. Then she says, she takes him through the nature of the human being. She takes him through what his own position implies about the inconsistency between his embeddedness in the world and his claim to be spiritually free. And then she says a little bit about herself and she says how she was the daughter of this, uh, this famous king and clearly she is, expects everybody to know who she is once she has revealed herself as you know, this, this daughter of this king, the student of a teacher, and then she very casually says, no husband appropriate was found for me, and therefore I took up 
this uh, renouncer hood. Now, this pass, and then she goes on to uh, show him how his questioning itself shows that he is still actually unliberated, that he is actually still uh, embedded, his, his, his world is imminent in the material world, whereas how she is and how she has been is uh, demonstrates the freedom that she has, the spiritual freedom she has, and it ends with Janaka defeated and silent in argument. Now, of course, structurally, we could interpret this in the historical context as another of those places where the Mahabharata extols the superiority of the renouncer's life over the householder's life, just like in other places, the householder is exalted. But what is interesting about this is that without any justification, without pointing out that this is not something that is that common, nevertheless, the text seems to take it for granted. It's perfectly okay. It's perfectly known for um, a young woman to become a renouncer and to be greatly knowledgeable and to be able to express the nature of her location within society. So she says both that she adheres to the dharma, the norms of society in terms of the caste, she's, she's from the royal caste, uh, even though she's a renouncer, that she has a certain training, that she's born of this king, she's been taught properly. So she upholds a particular kind of social order and yet within it, she absolutely normalizes the fact that she's a woman of knowledge, of integrity, of great intellectual wit and power. So reading it from a different angle, I was struck by how some of the um, sort of persistent questions that dogged modern Western philosophy, for example, whether there was something constitutively weak about the intellectual capacities of women, are something, things that are just not even brought up, not even entertained hypothetically in this material. Some of the things she talks about herself and the nature of her path to knowledge also are pretty provocative in the context of 20th century contemporary feminist thought about the importance and the significance of women to not establish themselves in this world in dependence on men. So the kind of ideas that have emerged about the relationship between um, the, no, the, the, the nature of gender and the nature of the body that arose especially in uh, the second half of the 20th century in people like Simone de Beauvoir seem to be very um, sort of the types of questions that we could bring this story to bear on. So in no way is Sulabha quote unquote a feminist. In no way is the Mahabharata simply talking about women's rights or equality or any such anachronistic idea. However, if these texts are not to be simply seen as historically embedded and of no value or virtue to us, in a way in which somehow the Greek and Roman materials seem to be forever alive in the Western academy, if these are to live for us, not in making wild claims about the eternal wisdom of the Hindu sources and so forth, but in a, in a very systematic, deeply engaged way, then it seemed to me that it was possible 
to read this story for our purposes so that it might live again in our contexts. And therefore, this chapter really looks at the relationship between gender and body. One way of looking at the relationship between gender and bodiliness that is about the nature of human experience that we could understand and relate with today. The third chapter, Leave Sanskrit Behind, moves into uh, Pali and looks at this fifth century um, text called the Visuddhimagga, the path of purification, written by the great uh, systematizer of Theravada Buddhism, Buddha Gosa, who was writing, who, who we think uh, uh, sort of had a, uh, was born and grew up in southern India, but spent his active career in what's uh, now Sri Lanka. Now, in this Visuddhimagga, on my reading and, and reading that was uh, deeply informed by uh, Maria Heim's interpretation of uh, Buddha Gosa, when he's talking about the discipline, which is what the path to purification is, when he's talking about the disciplinary practices of uh, that, that monks and nuns must undertake on their path, what we have here is a deeply ecological way of looking about at the human being. And I will return to the notion of ecological after I've uh, given examples of these four examples. What basically we find in Buddha Gosa's vision of the adept, the monk who is um, disciplining himself or the nun who's disciplining herself is a series of bodily practices, a way of picking their way literally and metaphorically through the world to take cognition as a continuous becoming of self-awareness, which is very, very different from the highly metaphysical, highly abstract, highly inward-looking, consciousness-oriented Mahayana traditions. So here, in the endless classificatory systems by which uh, the monk is supposed to examine how they are constituted, where the contemplative practice itself asks how it is that we are constituted and are without essence and are empty of essence, and yet nevertheless are human beings which can be liberated from suffering. Buddha Gosa gives us another way of looking at the human being and the experiential nature of human beings as grounded, as composite, as interactive, and as situated within a dense world of affect and interaction. For the final uh, part, I turn to what is by no means a um, philosophical book and yet was written by one of the great philosophers of India, Sri Harsha. Sri Harsha is best known in one domain of Sanskrit as the writer of the, uh, the great Advaitic text, the dialectical text, the Khandanakhandakadhyan, which I have written in the past. But he's known in another domain for having written this lavish, 
Mahakavya, great poem, the poetic composition, the Naishuddha Charita, the story of uh, Naishta, which is taken from the Mahabharata. In the Mahabharata, there is this story told of a king and, he, uh, and, and queen, Nala and Damayanti, who are, um, through extraordinary circumstances, come to love each other, they marry each other, but um, since he has, uh, she rejected um, the sort of one of the uh, the gods um, and married Nala instead, the, this this god uh, brings about misfortune so that Nala and Damayanti then lose everything uh, and each other until they, after great travails and uh, problems, are brought back together together with uh, their their son. What Sri Harsha does is to reread the story in a completely different way. He doesn't look at all at the latter half, the, the loss of all their fortune and each other and their rediscovery. He simply looks at the story of how they come to hear of each other, how they fall in love with each other, and spends the majority of the, the cantos of his composition looking at their um, wedding and the preparations around it. I, in particular, focused on a very unusual um, form of writing in, in Sanskrit kavya, in poetic composition. It's a chapter on the lovemaking of Nala and Damayanti on the night of their wedding. Now, the, the rasa, the, the kind of um, aesthetic essence of um, the erotic Shringara is one of the great uh, thematics of Kavya Sanskrit poetry, as well as Natya or, or plays. However, the dominant characteristic in the first thousand years of, the, of such compositions from the third, fourth century through well, 800 years through the 10th, 10th, 11th century was always to make the atmosphere re redolent with the attraction between the couple, to talk about their gestures, their feelings, but not, in fact, about the lovemaking itself. Strikingly, Sri Harsha, in a very often witty, lighthearted way, actually talks about the details of their lovemaking. That's a very unusual kind of composition. So in this last chapter, I engaged with what uh, in the last uh, generation or so has emerged in the West as uh, the concept of erotic phenomenology, which is what is the nature of the erotic relationship that tells us something specific, new, different about phenomenology, about uh, the nature of experience and therefore the nature of our bodiliness. So, um, together with a kind of a new translation of uh, that, of most of the verses from that canto, I explored the way in which in love and in lovemaking, the, there is a conceptualization that actually Sri Harsha offers us of what it is to be a bodily human. How it is that in that time of intensity, mm. the boundaries, the physical boundaries of the two human beings 
are both necessarily um, affirmed, but at the same time, the point of the meeting of those boundaries becomes a kind of dissolution into delight. So what is oneself and what is the other is both necessary and overcome. So it raises very interesting questions of where does the human being end and where does their environment begin? And that allows me to say something general about these case studies as a whole. Together with Maria uh, Heim, uh, we I developed this notion of an ecological phenomenology. And both of us uh, talk about ecological phenomenology as a way of thinking about the nature of our experience, our bodily experience, as infinitely connected to our environment. So as in an ecology in which what is relational and what is defined depends upon a particular context, we argue that so too with human beings, the nature of our experience, the nature of our bodiliness is dependent on context as to where it ends and where it begins, what consists of us and what consists of not us. So the example I often use is about this, um, there is a rare um, mushroom which is uh, which grows in, in, in upstate Oregon. Now, there is an entire forest because of their uh, connections between them. The underground system makes the set of the mushrooms there the single lar largest organism in the world. At the same time, it is also a very... Um, rare and uh, luxury, luxurious um, item in um, gourmet cooking. So when the chef goes up to harvest a limited number of these um, mushrooms in the Blue Mountains, he's not or she's not going up thinking, how am I going to harvest something which is tens of square kilometers large? The chef is thinking, I'm allowed to pick up, say, 12 mushrooms. Now, is this some complicated sort of metaphysical problem of the one and the many? Are there many things here or is there one thing? No, depending on the context. If you're a specialist on fungi, this is a single organism, indeed the largest in the world. If you're a chef, then, of course, there are thousands of different organisms here, some of which can be plucked to be used in a dish. So the suggestion is that the context in any ecology determines what constitutes an element of it. In the same way, metaphorically, what constitutes us is dependent on context. So Buddha Gosa could say, actually, the human being is made up of so many different um, elements that are sort of painstakingly typologized. 
And yet none of them is essential to the human being. So that the um, meditator says, I'm not this, I'm not that, until there is no I left. So the body, in a sense, is constantly being pulled apart until it's just a whole bunch of interactive constituent elements. So who are we in this? What is the nature of our bodily being? So Buddha Gosa says that the bodiliness is constituted of individual elements, none of which determine who this bodily being is. Whereas in the case of the lovers in Sri Harsha, it is necessary to feel that there are two beings here. So the love is felt between two people whose distances determine the longing which express the love. And yet, in their lovemaking and in the lifelong love that the readers will all know from the Mahabharata is going to inform very much harsher circumstances in that love, there is something where they deliberately lose something of who they are to the other person. So again, read one way, you draw the boundaries of a human being and their experience in one way, read in another, not necessarily a contradictory way, depending on the context, you're going to read them in some other way. So what I was hoping to say in all these four different chapters was that this phenomenology is not some kind of an abstract withdrawal into uh, determining the ontological nature of uh, the subject of experience, as we might say in Husserl. Of course, if you're going to be doing that, there are, of course, great Indian systems of thought, for example, Abhinavagupta's Kashmiri Shaivism, in which uh, phenomenology becomes the uh, method of a kind of ascent into self-understanding of pure subjectivity. This phenomenology is, as I call it, phenomenology in minor key. There are a few contemporary phenomenologists who have done this, but it's not a dominant strain in Western thought, which is that we think of phenomenology simply as a method of understanding the nature of experience in particular contexts. And ecological phenomenology suggests that the boundaries of human experience are always dependent in the context of why we study it. So that is what overarchingly the book does or seeks to do. Fascinating. So um, maybe we will end with, um, well, tell us a bit about who might most benefit from the book or what sort of interests and subfields does it touch upon? I, that's a question I've never been able to solve about the books I write. You uh, must be an academic. Books like Bread Upon the Water and who might be interested. Um, I think that individual chapters may appeal to the specialists in those fields. So there's a rich literature on the Charaka Samhita. There's a lot of work on uh, the Mahabharata and the narratives of the Mahabharata. Uh, there is, of course, a great deal of study of Pali Buddhism. And there is the sort of emerging field of Kavya 
and its many aesthetic dimensions. So people might want to go into one of these because they are such deliberately different genres of writing. So coming in from specializations in those fields, they might at least think, oh, here is a different way of looking at uh, these texts, which in some senses are familiar. The second group will be, I think, um, people who think of themselves as working broadly in uh, the discipline of Indian philosophy. As I was saying, a lot of what we think of as Indian philosophy, what I did for perhaps the first 20, 25 years of my own career, was really what might be mappable on to such Western categories as epistemology, metaphysics, philosophy of mind and consciousness, ontology, logic, language, and so forth. Yes, that's all there, but there is a richness to these materials that need not always have them structured according to what they themselves were saying, or indeed what Western philosophy might say counts as philosophy. So here is a way of saying, well, there is another, there are other ways of doing quote unquote Indian uh, philosophy. And then I guess there are also, um, one hopes, scholars trained in Western traditions who are increasingly acknowledging that we cannot treat the human activity of philosophy with a small p as simply conflatable into what counts as philosophy with capital P, which is Western. So Krishnan Ram Prasad talks, my son talks about what he calls the sleight of hand universalism of Western thought, where it says, look, on the one hand you say, um, this is applicable to all human beings everywhere across time and space universally. And yet it turns out to be a sleight of hand because it turns out that the questions are determined and the boundaries drawn by the Western tradition. So people are beginning to realize you can't talk about phenomenology as just this historical development from Husserl through Heidegger and Merleau-Ponty and so forth. Of course, they are important. I myself engage with Merleau-Ponty in this. However, when people say, as with analytic philosophy, so with continental thought and phenomenology, let's ask what was happening in other parts of the world, in Islamic thought, in India, in China, and so forth. So as that kind of self-consciously humane globalizing happens amongst those who think of themselves as Western philosophers. Maybe they will come to this material and say, all right, let us see how there could be a mutually illuminating way of looking at a familiar Western category called phenomenology. An inspiring thought on which to end our chat for today. Thank you for appearing on the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. So for those of you listening, um, we, of course, have been speaking um, with Dr. Uh, Chakravarti Ramprasad of Lancaster University on a fascinating work of, on phenomenology in ancient India. Until next time, uh, keep listening, uh, keep well, and um, keep contemplating the way in which other traditions may enrich our systems of thought. Take care.